The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Shannon Burgess, Details Talent. It's, it's hard to get an internship at the big stations, so I decided to come out here. And I don't really know anybody at all. Uh, I miss my dog. His name is Chester. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that's me. Are we good? Great, thanks. I, I've got to go edit this thing for tonight. Um, I, I love editing. You're gonna edit this, right? Previously, in part one of the Shannon Medill episode. You heard about the extremely close and nurturing family Shannon grew up in, and how she blossomed into a talented actress with a personality larger than life. You also learned about her marriage with Josh Burgess, and how they started to develop problems in their relationship after Shannon confessed to have been struggling with pain from an undiagnosed disease, Josh ultimately decided that their relationship needed to end. Shannon started making plans to move out and had her heart set on moving to Edmonton where she could pursue her career in acting. However, on December 1st, 2014, Shannon was nowhere to be found. She hadn't been seen or heard from for several days. Join me now as we take a look into the investigation of Shannon Medill's sudden disappearance and how her family agonized for seven long months as they tried to find her. You'll hear about the intense searches law enforcement conducted along with the various avenues they pursued, all the while keeping a close eye on one particular suspect. Shortly after the Medills filed a missing persons report on Shannon, law enforcement arrived at the Burgess residence to make sure Shannon wasn't there. And she wasn't. During their walk through the house, police didn't find anything out of the ordinary, or at least, nothing to indicate any sort of foul play. So two days later, the Calgary police gathered the Medill family together to announce Shannon's disappearance to the public. And although everyone from the family showed up, there was one person that needed some persuading. 
Josh hadn't intended on going. However, just before the press conference, Shannon's sister Erin arrived at his doorstep and wasn't planning on giving him an option. I did actually show up at his house that day. The reason why he had me feeling like I had to convince him is he was saying that he was divorcing her, so he didn't feel like he had a right to be there with us. And that was his excuse, and I could understand that. He was very good at having reasonable reasons that none of them seemed out of the ordinary. Nancy Hickst, who's been a crime reporter for Global News for almost 20 years, covered Shannon's story from the very beginning and developed a close relationship with the Medill family. Hickst can vividly remember back to the press conference where she first learned of Shannon's disappearance. The officer who was speaking at the press conference said that there was no reason to suspect foul play. So at that point, as a reporter, you don't know what to think. You have the family pleading, you know, saying, you know, you're not in trouble, you can come home. And so you start to think, well, did Shannon just not want to be found? Did she just want to get away? And, you know, that was kind of the messaging to the media for quite a while was that, you know, this was just somebody who had disappeared and there was no foul play involved. Before we go any further into the investigation, we really need to address a plaguing question many of you are likely asking yourselves. Was the estranged husband, Joshua Burgess, ever considered a suspect? The spouse or intimate partner is always the first person everyone suspects. Sadly, that suspicion is one that can be statistically proven. According to Statistics Canada, 32% of all homicide victims in 2017 were murdered by an acquaintance. And just under one-third, 31%, were murdered by a family member. About 84% of those homicide victims were killed by an intimate partner. Statistics also show that the rate of intimate partner homicide was five times higher for females. In the case of Joshua Burgess, if law enforcement had suspected him, they weren't making it known to anyone. In fact, the Medills themselves refused to believe that Josh had anything to do with Shannon's disappearance. He had been cooperating with the police and answering all their questions. Following the press conference, the police had asked all of Shannon's family, including Josh, to stay behind so they could interview all of them. For three hours, they sat in a room together as police brought them in, one by one, for questioning. The entire time they waited, Josh interacted with Shannon's family and appeared to be grieving just like the rest of them. His demeanor gave them no indication that he was guilty of anything. When police were interviewing Shannon's older brother, Tyler, he remembers directly addressing the assumption that the husband should always be the first suspect. I remember being in the interview room and saying to the police, the craziest thing is it's always the husband, but I don't see it from Josh. Like He's not capable of doing something like that. And I think part of it, too, was that it seemed preposterous to me at the time that a person could 
sit beside you and not show anything. Although Shannon's family didn't want to believe that Josh was capable of being involved in Shannon's disappearance, her sister Erin knew there was still a possibility. There was a lot of questions about why did I think she was missing? What do I think possibly could have happened to her? I will admit, at that point in time, I knew there were two options. Either Josh was involved or Josh wasn't involved. And my gut instinct was, if he was involved, then it was an accident, but he has her body somewhere. That's what we need to find. As Shannon's father, Dave, interacted with Josh while they all waited to be questioned, he didn't believe Josh behaved in a way that indicated any sort of guilt. But he certainly no longer held a very high opinion of him. I never talked to Josh after December 5th. I will admit that, and at the time, it wasn't so much that I figured he'd killed her, but I figured he had treated her badly in some fashion, directly or indirectly. The way he treated her played a part in what had happened. Have you ever thought about talking to someone, but are unsure of where to start? BetterHelp makes it easy to connect with a licensed professional counselor, caring professionals specializing in the issues that you want to talk about. BetterHelp is a service that really works for us, because with the subject matter we cover in this show, sometimes you just need to talk to somebody. And with our busy lifestyle, you can't beat the convenience. Join BetterHelp and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Schedule secure video and phone sessions or text your therapist, all included worldwide, and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's a truly affordable option, and the Minds of Madness listeners get 10% off your first month by going to betterhelp.com madness. If you've been wanting to talk, you can get started right now. Go to betterhelp.com slash madness. Simply fill out the questionnaire and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash madness. We wanted to see if we could find out more about Josh outside of what Shannon's family had shared with us. And surprisingly, we came up empty-handed. We tried searching for any friends or relatives, or even where he worked, and what we found, absolutely nothing. As we mentioned in part one, mutual friends of both Shannon and Josh didn't have much to share about him either. Nobody really seemed to know him. The only thing we learned about him was that after Shannon went missing, he continued to date a woman who he had met through the dating website. As Josh seemed to have moved on with his life, the Medill family and the Calgary police continued to try to figure out where Shannon had gone. The night after the press conference, the Medills were notified that someone thought they had recognized Shannon, hanging out at a bar that was by her house. Immediately, Aaron went to the bar, hoping to find her sister. It was a bar about a block away from her house and easy walking distance. 
So I went down to that bar and turned out it wasn't her. But just in case it was, I went back to the house in case she'd gone home to grab something. When Erin arrived at the house, she discovered that Shannon wasn't there, but encountered Josh instead. It was the first time she was able to hear his account of what had happened the last time he saw Shannon. He said he came home from hanging out with a friend that night, and she was on the couch, and he looked at her with just absolute disdain, like she was worthless. I can't remember if he said that he threw an insult at her, like you're pathetic or something, and he went up to bed. And then he woke up the next day and she was missing. He was very bewildered about what had happened, according to his story, where at the time that they were separating, like I said, she was in Edmonton a lot, so he just went with the assumption that he knew somebody was supposed to be picking her up on Friday to go up to Edmonton because she didn't want to drive the car in the snow. So he said he was never concerned that she wasn't home all weekend because he assumed she was in Edmonton and he didn't know that she had anything that she needed to be home for in Calgary. So his story was he didn't even know she was missing. After searching the Burgess residence, police also searched the surrounding area to ensure Shannon hadn't gone for a walk and accidentally slipped and fallen somewhere due to the massive snowstorm that had happened just a few days prior. They found nothing. One thing they also needed to consider was that Shannon might not have been in Calgary at all. Because her career had her traveling to auditions all over Canada, they needed to expand their search to encompass cities outside of Calgary, which included Edmonton, Vancouver, and Toronto. And because she'd been in the middle of packing her belongings, they weren't even sure if her passport was missing. They had no idea whether or not Shannon was even in the country. Police also considered the emotional stress Shannon had been dealing with regarding her marital problems and the possibility that she may have harmed herself. The police suspected that she might have committed suicide. I don't think that any of us in the family were ever sort of seriously believed that she would do that. The police thought that she was going to turn up in the Bow River, which is a fair-sized river that runs right through downtown Calgary close to uh, where Shannon lived. I could have believed at that point that Shannon stood on the edge of a bank there, contemplating life, and then in the midst of doing that, have slipped and slid down into the Bow River. But like I said, that she would have actively jumped in the river? No, I didn't believe that. Aaron didn't believe that it was possible that Shannon would have harmed herself either. For one, Shannon owned a dog that she absolutely adored, and given her love for animals, it seemed impossible that she would have left him behind without making sure he had a good home. 
And I also believe that if she would harmed herself, she would have done it in a way that she would be found because it, she wouldn't have wanted to disappear and make people worry. It would have been to relieve herself of the stress and anguish that she was going through. So the fact that her body wasn't found right away made it harder for me to believe that she had harmed herself. As days and weeks passed, Shannon's family continued to hold out hope that she'd eventually turn up. At one point during the investigation, there was a new possible lead that only ended up further traumatizing Shannon's already extremely distraught family. Erin remembers when police called to tell her about the photos found in Fish Creek Park and the possibility that the images could be of Shannon. I thankfully never actually saw these pictures, but I got a phone call one morning asking if Shannon had ever done headshots and who had done them, at which point I got the police in contact with everybody who had ever taken pictures of Shannon. But what I found out had happened is there was a girl who had been hired that looked a lot like my sister, and this girl had been made up to look like she was deceased, and there were a bunch of pictures that were taken that were very artsy with the face obscured, and they were posted all over the trees of Fish Creek Park. And that led to a search for if somebody had kidnapped her, killed her, and put her body, and buried her body in Fish Creek. It turned out that the photos had been created by an individual who was looking to gain some notoriety at the expense of Shannon's family, who had been living in constant turmoil. Not to mention the tremendous amount of police resources needed to search the park. I believe it was 200 police officers and cadaver dogs that searched that park for two days straight before they traced back where those pictures came from. So you're using all of these resources that could have been going to helping anybody else in Calgary because this person decided that they wanted to become known to the public. You've wasted police time of the devastation for my family as we're sitting there for two days waiting to find if they're going to find her body. It was awful. You just feel sick to your stomach. And then you realize that there's somebody out there that's just that callous to not even consider how damaging their actions are. Eventually, police were able to retrace some of Shannon's steps the week she went missing and were able to confirm she'd managed to make it to her audition in Edmonton the Wednesday morning before she disappeared. They were also able to prove that she'd made her way back home, as there was a record of her getting a speeding ticket along the way. They even managed to track down a surveillance video that showed her stopping to get gas in Red Deer, which was about the midpoint between Edmonton and Calgary. According to her phone records, she'd also sent a few text messages later that evening. But that was the last activity her phone had recorded. The longer Shannon remained missing, the greater the toll it took on her family. As we established in part one, Shannon had been so incredibly close with her family, it was hard to believe she would have ever intentionally put them through that amount of anxiety and worry. Everyone who loved Shannon 
found it increasingly difficult to cope with the unknown. For Shannon's mother, Lisa, it was her worst nightmare come true. My big fear with my kids when they were little was that they would go off missing and I'd never hear from them again and not know what happened to them. That was my worst nightmare come true. Deep down, you know something really bad has happened, but I just wouldn't allow myself to go there because I couldn't handle that. I just could not handle it. This kind of stress where you have no control over it, you cannot change it. There is nothing that you can do. You can call the hospital or contact the police, but after that, it's all out of your hands. You're just hoping and praying every day that there's going to be news and that it's going to be okay. And that, you know, you're going to want to hug her and smack her all at the same time. Happy to see her, but so upset that she put you through this. And it's horrendous. The term is ambiguous loss. And I know when I was at my doctor's, he said, human beings don't deal well with unknown. We always want to rationalize things, find answers towards things. And when you can't, it is so hard on your system. It was torture. As months passed by, with still no word from Shannon, Lisa continued to force herself to go to work as a means of escape. However, when she was at home, she found it extremely difficult just to get out of bed. I stopped eating, I stopped sleeping, and you lose perspective of everything. And then, of course, I've also got my other children and my husband going through this as well. And we're all suffering. And as a mother, I can't fix that for them. And that was really hard to cope with, too. I had no way of fixing it for them. Aaron told us, that the longer the search went on for Shannon, the more neurotic she became. Every time a deceased woman's body was found, Erin waited to find out if it was her sister. There was another girl, actually, who disappeared in December or January after Shannon had gone missing, and her body was actually found in March. And that was the first of the bodies where every time you read in the news that a body's been found, you go into like a massive panic attack where your gut just sinks because you're like, that's it, it's over, she's dead. When Aaron wasn't waiting to find out if another Jane Doe found was Shannon, she was doing her own searches of the Bow River. I had a really hard time trying to stay away from the river because I always thought that maybe her, her body has to be in this river somewhere and once it thaws, they're going to find her. So I would actually struggle with myself to not go out because it would be so dangerous to go and search the river for her myself. And I'm really happy that I had friends and such an amazing support group that kind of talked me off the ledge every time I got there. But it was just this driving need to find her. When Erin was alone with her thoughts, she couldn't stop her mind from going to some of the darkest places. I was having horrific nightmares of well, if her body hasn't been found, maybe she's being tortured somewhere. You start going to the worst, worst-case scenarios. And some of my worst-case scenarios that I feared were we were going to be one of those families that were just never going to know. You're in this perpetual 
anxiety, perpetual high stress situation where you're always on edge and you're always just waiting for that shoe to drop. And the long-term health ramifications of this, I still don't even know. But the psychological damage that waiting to find out what had happened was awful. Shannon's brother, Tyler, also began to imagine the plethora of horrible possibilities that could account for his missing sister, but admitted that for the first while, he was hoping for a different scenario. For the first three months, I'd say I was just hoping that she had taken off Maybe she fell in love with some guy and he whisked her away. And, and, you know, how nice would that be if it was she was living and she just she just chose to to run away and enjoy life. After the initial investigation of tracking down leads, retracing Shannon's last steps and conducting various searches, there wasn't much more the Calgary police could do. There was no digital footprint of Shannon and Calgary police advised the Medills to expect the worst and that they needed to wait until spring for the snow to thaw. There was a general consensus that most likely what was going to happen is the rivers were going to thaw and they were going to find her body in the river. So we just had to wait. Shannon's family refused to give up hope. You still have that glimmer of hope until you're actually confronted with the worst, where maybe, just maybe, this is going to be the person who comes back after 18 years, or she has actually run away, but she's on her way home kind of thing. It was awful just having to sit and wait. The Medills had to painfully wait and anticipate the devastating possibility that Shannon might be deceased. Finally, In March, when the snow had melted and the rivers were safe, police conducted a massive search and rescue around the Bow River to see if they could find anything. But they didn't. Police had been pushing to do additional searches of the area, but they were running out of options. They basically decided that it didn't look like she was in the Bow River. And they had done enough searching with dogs and everything else that they didn't think that she was anywhere close to the house or that. We were told that we couldn't really have a lot more resources going to this case because they were sort of out of options. It had been four months since Shannon first went missing. And after all the resources poured into investigating Shannon's disappearance, it appeared to the general public that police were no further ahead in determining what had happened to her. It was as if she had vanished into thin air. As the Medills continued to find different ways to cope, Erin found some solace in reminiscing about her sister with Josh. It was probably one of the easiest times I had during those seven months because I had this other individual who loved and cared about my sister who could talk with me about her as if she was a person. It was really hard for my family to talk about her because we were all grieving. And when you're in so much pain, it's really hard to be able to be in pain with somebody else. You almost need somebody outside of that circle so you don't feel like you're trying to protect them. And I think that was happening a lot in my family. We were all so hard trying to protect each other from the pain that we couldn't 
grieve together. With Josh, when we would talk about it, we would talk about the funny times. We would talk about how ridiculous she was. We would talk about how she would change words to songs and sing them and how lively and the silly jokes that she would tell and her love of puns. So it was so calming to have him there that night and to be able to remember my sister as a person. After hanging out with Josh, any initial suspicion that Aaron might have had about him being involved in her sister's disappearance was soon washed away. It didn't take long for Aaron to question herself once again. After I had dinner with Josh, the following Friday, we both happened to be having beers with friends at the same bar, and he informed me that the day after our dinner, the police had taken him in for questioning and he felt like a suspect, so he decided to get a lawyer because he didn't want to get charged or convicted of something that he hadn't done by saying something he shouldn't. So he told me he got a lawyer, and the lawyer had told him not to talk to me or the family anymore. And at the bar, I was, you know, we just did the, okay, fine. And he was honestly very nonchalant about it, told him I was going to respect it. I wasn't going to contact him anymore, but he was welcome to contact me if he wanted to. Two weeks later, as Aaron was having an update call with one of the police officers working on her sister's case, she was surprised to learn that they hadn't interviewed Josh after their dinner. Like he said, he had no idea what I was talking about. So at that point in time, they had me go into the police department and they did another interview talking about the dinner with Josh, what we had discussed, Josh's demeanor that night, as well as the following Friday when I met up with him and he told me about the lawyer. And then from my perspective, stone silence. For three months, the Medills heard nothing from the Calgary police. It was then that Aaron decided to give her aunt a call, a former homicide detective, to see if it was normal to go so long without hearing word on an open investigation. She assured me not to worry about it. A lot of stuff happens, but a lot of stuff happens that takes a long time. Global News crime reporter Nancy Hickst also addressed what may have been a public perception that the Calgary police weren't moving forward in Shannon's investigation. I think you have to kind of understand there's a big difference between what the public necessarily hears and what's happening behind the scene. I know that Calgary Police homicide detectives were working on this very, very hard. And the lead detective on this case, she had seen some major discrepancies in the stories. There was holes and things weren't adding up. Detectives were piecing together what happened. The Calgary Police Homicide Detectives that worked on this case did amazing work. It wasn't until Thursday, July 2nd, that the Medill family got their first indication that there might be some movement with Shannon's investigation. The next thing they heard was that the police had managed to secure a warrant to search Shannon's car and to get access to Josh's cell phone records. It was then the following day at uh, 7.30 in the evening on the Friday night that I was called and told to have everyone come to the police as soon as possible. I was pretty sure that I knew exactly what was going to be happening, but, but there's still hope. For me, there was still hope. 
my wife and I were going to see a movie and we literally just sat down and we got a call from my mom saying, we're at the police station, you have to come right now. And we stood up and walked out. I knew right then and there they found her body because there was only one reason they'd be calling us all in instead of just passing along information on the phone. So the minute I got that phone call, I knew she was dead. Before the police had called the Medells, they had actually already gone to Josh's residence to serve the search warrants that morning. When they arrived, Josh refused to answer the door, but was speaking to them through a window. No one could have ever predicted what was about to happen next. Instead of opening up the door, Josh said through the window, I killed Shannon. They wound up getting the whole tack team in with all the sharpshooters and everything else. It took them hours. Like it was like three and a half hours before they finally got him out of there. As the police were trying to convince Josh to come out of his house peacefully, he made an attempt to cut his throat. Eventually, they managed to get him out safely and immediately rushed him to the hospital for treatment. It wasn't too long after that police soon realized that Shannon had been at the house all along. They found the disturbed concrete and everything in the front yard and dug it up and found Shannon. A joint investigation between the homicide unit, the missing persons team, and the centralized general investigation section has led to the arrest of one man in relation to the disappearance of Shannon Medale Burgess. Joshua Burgess, 29 years old, is charged with one count of second degree murder. His next court appearance is tomorrow, July 6th, 2015. After hearing the little information law enforcement could disclose, Shannon's mom remembers being flooded with emotions. The first one is just total shock. It's like you've been hit by a two by four. And that's exactly what it feels like. It feels like somebody's just whacked you in the head. There's no other way to describe it. So that was two hits, two hits with the two by four. So she's dead, he did it. And then you ask for details and they won't give them to you because it's going to go to court. You know it's going to go to trial, so they're not giving you any information. You ask questions and they say, can't really answer that right at this moment. So then you leave in a daze, shocked, with more questions than ever before, knowing that you're not going to get any answers. The rest of Shannon's family also felt devastated. I was in disbelief. And just absolute sorrow. It it crushed me. I was so sad. Sadness that he'd done it. Sadness that she was dead. Guilt as well. There's nothing you can do to change it. But you do. You think, well, if I talked to her on November 25th, if I made her move in with me, but you go, I should have known. How did I not know that Josh had her? How did I not know where she was? How did I let this go on for seven months? So for me, I just became obsessed with the guilt of how I didn't solve this. I didn't fix this. I didn't make this better for my family. I wasn't able to protect her. And 
there was a lot of anger that he had done it, that he'd lied about it, that he'd manipulated the situation for so long. It was a lot of feelings all very quickly. It was difficult for all of them to comprehend that Shannon's life had been taken from them, from someone they had trusted and welcomed into their family, someone who had promised to love and cherish her. Shannon's autopsy was performed on July 6th, the same day as her birthday. Five days later, her body was released to her family so they could finally put her to rest. She would have been 26 years old. The immediate family were all together when they cremated her. The funeral home covered Shannon's coffin in newsprint so everyone could write messages to her before they said their final goodbyes. Shannon's father, Dave, was able to send his daughter off by being the one to push the button of the crematorium. I think that was very cathartic for him. And he said it just felt like he was sending her on her way. But after Shannon was cremated, the pain and trauma was far from over for the Medills. That same week was Josh's arraignment, where he pleaded not guilty to the charges of second-degree murder. Josh's lawyer was optimistic that if Josh went to trial, he would be able to get a lesser charge of manslaughter. A year later, on August 8th, 2016, during his preliminary hearing, they had to face Josh for the first time since he was arrested. So they had done about a week of preliminary hearing. They had presented a bunch of evidence and they were actually set the next day to show his interview tape. That was when he had decided that he didn't want to proceed with the preliminary hearing anymore and had requested to end it. I believe at that time, the Crown had heard enough evidence to feel like they could go forward, so they had no objections to that. Following the hearing, Shannon's family was gathered once again by detectives, where they learned for the first time the heartbreaking details of what had happened to Shannon the night she disappeared. She had come home and she was on the couch, and... At that point in time, they ended up actually becoming intimate. After Shannon felt disgusted with herself, she was having a lot of conflicting feelings about being in love with him, but also wanting the divorce. And they got into a, an argument and they started yelling at each other, at which point she told Josh that she thought he was despicable. She regretted marrying him and that she felt disgusted that she let him touch her. That's when Josh put his hand over her face to stop her from talking. And she bit him. And then he became so enraged that he choked her to death with his hands. But then he let go of her. 
and retrieved the belt off of his pants and cinched it around her throat to make sure she was dead. And then he took her body and put it in a Rubbermaid bin and put the Rubbermaid bin outside on the back porch and made it look like it was all part of the storage. Once again, Shannon's family was hit with another shockwave, now fully realizing the extent of what she endured in her final moments and where her body lay for months afterward. When the full truth came out, it was a huge shock to me that this person I knew that I considered a friend was this person that had done this horrible deed. Emotionally devastating. The first part of it is just her missing. And then the second part of it is just trying to understand how to deal with this grief of knowing what's happened. It's definitely uh, painful. And like I said, it, uh, I cried more than I did in the first 60 years of my life. Josh married her and was supposed to be taking care of her. And Betrayal was my biggest emotion. I couldn't believe the betrayal. And then after that, pity. And when you find out all the details, you just, you're, my mind would never have gone to that. I just couldn't wrap my head around the fact that somebody would willingly kill her, <sighs> would have that much hatred towards her that they would want her dead. I didn't see that monster. In the midst of the pain Shannon's family was experiencing, in dealing with their own loss, they were also grieving for Josh's family. You know, quite honestly, I was really grieving for his mother as well. She had been in contact with, with us the whole time. She loved Shannon. And, you know, she would send us flowers and just say, you know, thinking about you guys, hope we find her soon. And she's gone through everything that we have, except for two things. One, she, her child is still alive. And two, she doesn't have community support like we do. My one angry thing was, how could you put your family through this? And my child is not suffering anymore. We are, but she isn't. But your mother has to watch you go through everything else that has to happen. I thought, how dare you? How dare you do that to her? You may be wondering, how was it possible that police hadn't come across Shannon's body after they searched the Burgess residence on several occasions? Aaron explains. There's a lot of concern about privacy. And the thing I have to really praise the police for is they did everything by the book. So you don't open a drawer unless you have a specific permission to open that drawer. Because if they did and they found something, there could be an argument that is not admissible, and then fruit from the poison tree, everything that comes from that item is no longer admissible. So even though they were doing those inspections of the house, because of the way he killed her, it wasn't like there was blood evidence anywhere. And where he put her body, it looked like storage. It didn't look as the norm. The police actually walked right past her body on that scan. But like I said, the way in which he'd hidden it, it didn't seem out of the ordinary. Like if you go into your basement, how many boxes do you have, right? Like you wouldn't say, oh, that box is definitely something. And because where he put her body, there had been a massive snowfall. So it wasn't even like there was 
snow that had been disturbed, there weren't any red flags. And I was even in that house and there was nothing that made me go, oh, she's there or this is unusual. There was nothing to make you question that anything he was saying wasn't true. After the ground had completely thawed is when Josh decided to bury Shannon's body. Coincidentally, the townhouse complex he was living in had just sent out a notice to all the residents stating that they needed to clean up their yards and do some landscaping on their properties. So when Josh's neighbor saw him digging in the garden, it didn't appear unusual. So when the neighbor saw Josh digging in the garden and moving everything around in the garden, it wasn't weird because they had already been told to do that. And what you need to know about the location is it's on a very, very steep hill. So there's only one house that can see into that garden. And you basically have to be at the kitchen window and directly looking into it to see it. So you're not going to just happen to pass by and notice it. And even from the street in front of the house, it's actually just a hill and then a whole bunch of trees. So nobody looks directly onto the house. And even if you're walking past, you have to be directly in front of it to even see into the fence because there's a fence in front and then these really high fences on either side of it. So he did actually have a lot of privacy, even though it was the front yard. It's a lot of privacy and very, very difficult to see into. So the one neighbor who did have a view did actually see him digging and moving around stuff in the garden, but thought nothing of it because they had been told, clean up your garden. And he was doing it later at night. But once again, Josh had weird hours. Shannon had weird hours. So you just think, oh, well, this must be when they have time to do it. The Medill's nightmare continued. They still had to wait another year before Josh would finally go to trial. Because of various delays in the judicial system, there was fear that the case would be thrown out of court due to a new Canadian law that had been established outlining a maximum reasonable amount of time that could elapse between when charges were laid on an accused until the end of his or her trial. The ceiling established by the Supreme Court for a federal charge was 30 months. Josh had been arrested in July of 2015. It was coming up to 28 months since he'd been arrested, when another trial in Red Deer threatened to delay the start time even further. So as we were getting closer to the trial, it was about a month out, I believe. Our trial was in jeopardy because Alan Fay was tied up in another trial in Red Deer. The judge at the time was not allowing him to go because I believe had pre-scheduled vacation. He was asking for a continuance on the trial he was set to defend in Red Deer and didn't want the continuance to interfere with that. That's when we found out about Jordan's Law and were informed that if the trial was set to go forward in Red Deer, it would potentially make it so that it would exceed the time in which Josh was supposed to get a a trial. And so the result of that would, would effectively be that if he wasn't tried in time, he would be able to go free. And so fortunately, another judge had essentially ordered the judge in Red Deer to proceed with allowing the continuance so that Alan Fay could be freed up. Shannon's family continued to battle with their feelings towards Josh for dragging them through two more years of anguish. 
there's more rational thought where I understand people looking after their best interests. And then there's the emotional side of why are you doing this? Why are you hurting so many people? So this is a very complicated feeling for me when I understand that if you're looking at murder too, you automatically get life. No matter what, he's never off parole. Now, life doesn't mean life in prison. It just means he's never off parole. He has to always have restrictions on his movements, on his life, on what he can do. So there is no benefit for him to plead guilty to murder too. Because what's the difference between spending 10 years in jail versus going through a trial and spending 12 years in jail when you're looking at the rest of your life on parole? Versus if you can get off on manslaughter, now you have a set limit. And once you're done doing your time, you no longer have to do parole. You have a lot more freedoms and it opens up a lot of things. So it was completely in his best interest to try to fight it and look and see if there was any possible way he could get away with not actually having to go to jail on a murder to charge. I get that. However, he did confess and there was a lot of evidence both in the autopsy and in his confession that very much made it obvious it was a murder too. But when you have a good lawyer, they tell you to do what's best for you and he did that. And even though it hurts and I'm also mad at him, I can't fault him for doing that because that is within his right. So he basically held out for as long as he possibly could. I would have felt differently about Josh. If there'd been a phone call to 911 on November 27th, 2014, and with him admitting what he'd done, I would do not believe I would have had a problem at that point going along with manslaughter. But the very fact that he kept us all hanging for seven months, the way he treated her, and I mean, sticking her in a a plastic thing, keeping her out on the porch for six months, and then burying her in the front yard, didn't show any real sense of remorse to me. He could have ended this so much faster. He dragged this out so long. He could have admitted to this at any point. He was a coward. It was all set to go, and he waited to the week before, and that's when he decided he didn't want to go through with it. So he was going to just plead guilty and take his sentence. Just before Josh's trial, which had been set for November 27, 2017, he changed his plea from not guilty to second-degree murder to guilty. His defense attorney, Alan Fay, explained to reporters why he had changed his mind. My client's uh, decision was that he did not wish to proceed to trial. He felt that by doing so, the uh, family of uh, his wife would be exposed to a number of very stressful and traumatic details. He did not want that to occur, so he instructed me to enter the guilty plea on his behalf. I don't think at any time Josh acted in favor of our family. I don't think he ever had us in mind when he made any decision regarding his trial. If he really did have our best interests at heart, he would have pled guilty a lot sooner than that. He wouldn't have dragged us out. He wouldn't have made us go through nearly as much as we did. To suggest that at the trial, he was somehow doing us a favor by entering a guilty plea 
was nothing more than him acting in cowardice because he didn't want to have to go through what would come out in a trial. He didn't want to have to have people listen to the things that he did. He took the easy way out, but he did so every time at the very last moment. He put everyone through most of a preliminary trial before he chose to request it be ended. And then he waited till the very last minute to spare himself going through a full trial. And it was insensitive for anyone to suggest that this was an act of kindness or that he was sparing us from anything. At this point, we knew pretty much all of the details. We were prepared to go to trial and see it through. It was Josh that decided he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to put himself through that. When reporters asked Faye why Josh had kept Shannon hidden at the property for so long, he responded by saying, My own opinion uh, is that uh, in a way he could not bear to part with her, and that was his way of, of maintaining that. In court, Josh was given the opportunity to address Shannon's family, where he expressed his deep regret and sadness for what he did. He said, I'm very sorry for the vows that I made, that I promised to look after her, no matter what the circumstances were. I failed her in that. For several months afterwards, everybody stood by me, unquestionably. I failed all of you in that, and I am so very sorry for that, so very sorry that I didn't say something earlier. The Medills were also given a chance to give impact statements. Shannon's father directly addressed Josh and said that a better man may be able to someday forgive him for what he did, but that he didn't believe he would ever be able to, given the pain that he caused the people he loves, including Shannon. My victim impact statement that I read to him, the very last thing that I had in it was I said that if he gets out, that I feel that it would be far best for all concerned if I never see him again. Aaron also spoke to Josh and expressed the torment he put them all through. She said, spending seven months looking for my sister was the hardest thing I've ever done. My mind would go to the darkest places, wondering where she could be and what happened to her. When she was finally found, a whole new dark period started. After the victim impact statements, the judge sentenced Josh to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 10 years. But for Shannon's family, no amount of time in prison would ever bring her back to them. You know, there's all these different things that happen that you have no control over. You don't get to decide how long he goes away for. I got to the point where it really didn't matter what his sentence was. Three years, 10 years, 12 years, 50 years. She's not coming back. My big goal was I wanted to hear him say he had done it. I wanted to hear him confess and I wanted to hear the judge say guilty. And that did happen. I got a, a small amount of peace. And then after that, because it doesn't really matter, as long as he's walking the earth, 
it doesn't make any difference. Only justice is if they could switch places. To me, that's the only thing that would be just. Aaron explains the difference between justice and fairness in an outcome like this. People confuse justice with fairness all the time. We're basically, they think, well, justice is done, you have closure, and therefore everything is fair again. And that's not true. No matter what happened, you can't give back what was taken. When you have a crime like this, and not just murder, but any crime that causes you physical anguish and mental disturbance for an extended period of time, you can never really have fairness. So justice is what we, as a society, decide is just. And justice around the world isn't even the same. So it's not like Josh can all of a sudden, by going to jail, I get my sister back. I spend the rest of my life knowing that there was a person that mattered the world to me that I'm never going to see again, that she's never going to be there. Every single happy event in my life will always have a little bit of sadness. So when I get married this year, my maid of honor is dead. The person who would be my biggest champion and there for every single instance in my life is gone. I don't have that automatic best friend anymore. And no matter how much time he spends in jail, that doesn't change. So there will never be fairness. But then when you talk about justice, you have to decide what is it that the legal system is supposed to do. Obviously, you want the deterrent. Well, as far as the deterrent goes, I don't think Joshua, he was killing Shannon, went, is this worth 10 years of my life in jail? I don't even think if it was 50 years or 100 years, I don't think that thought ever goes through his head. So obviously, the length of time isn't a deterrent. If you think of it as a punishment, well, then obviously, yes, the longer he's in jail, the bigger the punishment is because he's losing out on his liberties. And then the other aspect is a timeout, effectively, and the safety for society. And the experts say he's not a threat to society. This is an anomaly. It's incredibly unusual, and it makes no sense. So he's not a threat. However, there is the aspect of we need a timeout. Because even though I do believe in reformative justice, I don't think I'm prepared to have to go face-to-face with the man that killed my sister. Although Josh had finally been sentenced, the agony Shannon's family had endured wasn't coming to an end. Five years later, they continued to struggle in different ways and experience various emotions over everything that happened. Both Tyler and Shannon's father, Dave, feel anger towards Josh while still coping with a tremendous amount of sadness. Today, Dave says he's only just gotten to the point where he doesn't cry every single day, mourning the loss of his daughter. Most of my crying I do when I'm by myself. Certainly does still happen pretty regularly. Although Dave cries a little less each day, Shannon's absence will always be apparent. I had reached a very good place in my mind before this happened. When we would have family events and I'd be there and I'd have my children around, I'd have their loved ones around, I'd have grandchildren around, I could say that I was almost sort of at a point of bliss. 
this is fabulous. We're all here. And I can tell you now, it's always a bittersweet thing when I'm with the whole family because it's never the whole family. It never will be the whole family. Dave said he will never see the color purple again without thinking about Shannon. I always referred to her as my purple princess because she she loved purple. That was her color, and I will never see purple without thinking of her. Every time Dave looks at his chest, he also has another reminder of Shannon. It's where he decided to get a tattoo of the Little Mermaid. She loved the Little Mermaid. Was her she loved all the Disney movies, but that one was her special. Dave also has a Shannon's playlist that he listens to, which is comprised of the Little Mermaid soundtrack, along with other various Disney movie songs she loved. Tyler grieves that his two children will never know who their aunt was. They were two and three when she passed, so they don't really have any memory of her, which is so heartbreaking because she loved them so much. She loved being Auntie Shan. You could tell that she was really excited to be an aunt. And the fact that as they grew up and see pictures and ask questions, where's, where's Auntie Shan? What, what happened to her? And like, how do you explain that to a child? If anything, it's more frightening to think that there's going to come a day that we have to explain that to them where they're going to be old enough where they can hear that story. For a while, Erin was able to feel like she had a piece of her sister still alive with her as she cared for Shannon's dog that she loved so much. Being able to take in her dog and look after him, I felt like I was really honoring her and her memory. And it was great because I felt like I had this connection to her still. He was the thing that forced me to get out of bed in the morning to take him for a walk. It's so easy when you're grieving to just go into that depression and stop doing everything. Stop going out, stop looking after yourself. And having that dog, I couldn't. I had to get up. I had to walk him. It felt so good to do something for her as well as have a connection. He was just such a great friend to have. And he was with me until his passing. Shannon's brother, Brett, chose to honor his sister by naming his youngest child after her. Shannon's mother, Lisa, joined a homicide support group and has spent much of her time focusing on her mental, emotional, and physical well-being. Lisa, who had never set foot in a gym in her entire life, found therapy from going six times a week where she trains with another surviving victim of homicide, and together, they've worked through the trauma of losing a loved one through physical fitness. Lisa hopes that by sharing her family's experience, she'll be able to provide hope for other survivors. My best piece of advice would be to get out into the world, find yourself a community, a grief support community, a homicide support community, and get yourself a really good therapist because you cannot do this on your own and come out well on the other end. It's impossible. 
people think that they're strong and they'll make it through. There are wounds that are just too great that you need help with. And if that means seeing your doctor, seeing your therapist, seeing a chiropractor, a massage therapist, a personal trainer, get outside, take a walk, go to the park, see children playing. At some point, it gets easier, but just acknowledge that your pain is never going to go away, but you do learn how to live with it. On August 23rd, 2015, the Medills held a memorial service for Shannon, which was very much a celebration of life, and they called it her farewell tour. Her life which was described as a play, inspired the idea to create a program for attendees which included director's notes, a list of cast and crew who would be performing in the Weston Hotel Ballroom, and it was filled with an audience of over 500 people. Friends and family of Shannon gathered to honor her life and achievements sharing many stories filled with laughter and tears. Dozens of Shannon's former Stampede bandmates even performed, while family and friends took part in karaoke, one of Shannon's favorite hobbies. A group of women took to the stage to sing, Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, while Dave and Aaron got up to sing, California Dreaming. One of the songs Shannon and her dad often sang together on karaoke nights. It was clear by all those who attended how much Shannon was adored and how much she will be missed by everyone. To this day, Shannon's mother Lisa carries her daughter's ashes with her wherever she goes. We've been traveling a lot since she died. We've been to Europe a couple of times, and I was in Australia and just all over the place. And I sprinkle a little bit of her everywhere I go. You know, she's in the fountain in the Bellagio in Las Vegas. She's at the Vatican. She's in Tuscany, a little bit of her in Turkey and Australia and all the different places that I've been to in the last four years. Every time I leave the city, she comes with me, even if it's, well, she went to Edmonton with us and went to the Paul McCartney concert and, you know... Shannon will continue to live on in the memory of those who cherish her and will never be forgotten. She was a loving, caring, outgoing person who had this amazing heart and wanted to help people. She was really funny and she was really sweet. You could tell that she had the talent and the drive to be somebody and she should have gotten that chance because she was so full of life. And she had a lot to give, and I miss her. She was a, a really good person that liked people and, and liked to make people happy. And that, to me, is the biggest thing that I will always remember. I just wish that she had the chance to continue doing that for many, many more years. I'll certainly never forget her, never stop missing her. I remember my first day at school, my mama took me by the hand and I had this bouquet of roses too. Mama let me pick the loveliest roses from the garden and the teacher thanked me for them. 
And then Mama went to leave, and I was scared because well, I'd never been any place without her. We'd like to say a special thank you to the Medill family for their involvement in Shannon's episodes. As you can imagine, it's extremely difficult for survivors of homicide to talk about the most traumatic and painful time in their lives. But if it wasn't for the time the Medills spent with us, we would have never been able to give this intimate perspective into Shannon's life and their lives. Thank you so much, Dave, Lisa, Aaron, Tyler, and Brett, for trusting us to tell Shannon's story. I would like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Tracy H., Marguerite C., Julie T., Cassie S., Rebecca D., and Lindsay L. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, Mind of a Mass Murderer. Hi, I'm Karen, the host and producer of the podcast Mind of a Mass Murderer. Many people see mass murderers as lone wolves packing high-powered weapons with a seemingly endless supply of ammunition who just snap. Mass murderers are as unique as only human beings can be. Though there are warning signs, most are linked together after the fact. There are family annihilators, spree killers, set-and-run murderers, and so many other types of rage-driven massacres. What fuels and drives this rage? What causes a person's mind to deteriorate so much from the venom of hate that it melts away all their humanity. Come join me as I take a deep dive into the dark, frigid waters of the mind of a mass murderer. End Crime Beat. Some people know their hometowns by streets or bridges or even their favorite mall. Some people know them from their favorite memories, like where they hung out as kids where family or friends used to live, or even where they had their first kiss. I know mine by the crime scenes I've been to. I'm a crime reporter for Global News, a beat I've worked on for more than 20 years. I see some really bad stuff and cover some very dark subject matter. These cases involve real people who've gone through things most of us will hopefully never have to face. They've suffered horrible loss or unspeakable trauma. I report on crime because I want to provide a voice for victims. And I spend a lot of my time knocking on criminals' doors to ask the questions victims can't. On this brand new podcast, I'm going to take you inside the cases I've worked on some of them solved, and some still looking for answers. You'll hear what I heard, and I'll share details you've never seen before on the news. I'm Nancy Hickst, and this is Crime Beat. Subscribe for free now at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. Minds of Madness 
can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at madnesspod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorrecords.com dot au slash g e